Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. Many stories have beautiful resolutions or clean endings, and we love that. In fact, we're kind of, when we go to the movies, we want to see a good ending. We want to see a clean resolution. But the reality is that sometimes in life, in fact, for many of us, we find ourselves in the midst of a story, between the what is to come and the not yet. We find ourselves before the end when there may not be a clean resolution. And today we have the privilege of hearing the story of someone who is bold enough to share what it looks like in the midst of a story, when you're walking through suffering. Today we're going to hear from a friend of ours named Amber Broadway. Many of you actually may recognize her from this video. And the beauty and the bravery of Amber is that she is able to testify of what it looks like to live fully, even in the midst of suffering. It's beautiful. To me, it's a testament of real faithfulness and real honesty. But what I want you to watch for, and this is what's so incredibly beautiful, I want you to watch for her hope. Because despite the fact that it doesn't have some of the clean, happy ending that we long for yet, her story is shot through with hope and faithfulness. And I know today it will be both an encouragement and an inspiration to you. So Cape Cod Church, please sit back and enjoy this story from our friend, Amber Broadway. My name is Amber Broadway, and I'm originally from Texas, but I live in Sacramento. Growing up, my mom um, was sick and had a lot of different health issues Um, and it started when she was in her early 30s Um, and that is about when my health challenges started for me too Um, it started with fibromyalgia and chronic pain and fatigue and then um, it's really kind of spiraled since then over the past few years I um, have been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which is an invisible illness. You can't see it, and most people probably don't really know. But my body is attacking itself, and that happens in my joints. I um, am still trying to find the right therapeutic treatment that helps me with that. But um, but yeah, that's my... That's my journey at this point. There are lots of times in my life. I mean, I sit on my back deck and, you know, just sit outside and pray in the mornings. And some mornings it's prayers for people in my life that I know are hurting or have something going on. And sometimes it's God just helped me sit up in my chair long enough today to be able to get through my work day. Um, And some days it's, I don't know that I want to sit through my chair today. I don't know that I want to get through my work day. I'm tired and I'm weary. And I can talk through those things and I can be 
frustrated and vulnerable and sad, but not without hope. I met my husband um, at church in the youth group. Um, I was, I don't know, probably in middle school. Um, and we started dating when I was 14 and he's been stuck with me since then. We've been married 23 years. My husband is the biggest gift. He really got the short end of the stick when it came to in sickness and health in those parts of our vows. Stuart always carries the burdens that we have collectively as a family. And he does it with me, not for me. I have a tattoo on my forearm that has a couple of spoons. So the story is that everybody starts with the same number of spoons in a day and your spoons represent your energy and your capacity for that day. So if we all start with 12 spoons in a day, most people are able to use one spoon per activity and get through their day and do the things that they need to do. But for somebody that has a chronic health issue, some days you don't have the same number of spoons as everybody else. The spoons are a way for my family and friends to relate and kind of meet me where I am. And for me to be vulnerable and honest, I think it's just very straightforward. How many spoons do you have? Or for me to say, I'm running out of spoons today. I'm not able to do, you know, something that I might want to do. A full life for me looks different than it does to other people. Some days the full life for me is being able to get out of bed and go to my desk downstairs and get through a day of work. So my expectations for what living fully is um, look a little bit different than I think a lot of people would expect. I think that the me that you see on Sundays when I'm singing, I think that a lot of people don't know what's behind that mask, what's behind the makeup, what's behind the voice. I think a lot of people don't genuinely know what that looks like. Um, so some Sundays, living fully means that I was able to show up and that God could use me as a broken vessel to share his message to other people. And other Sundays, I'm at home watching it on the live stream because I can't get up and come and be with everyone. And that's okay too. I think that's in my journey. That's what living fully looks like for me. Stories are powerful. They are the way we draw meaning out of life how we share ourselves with others, how moments become family folklore and journeys become lessons. Stories help us see the world with fresh eyes, and our world is full of billions of individual stories from countless perspectives. But what if all our stories pointed to something greater, one beautiful story that made sense of the world? And what if stories had the power to live forever because they were made to? This is your story, my story, our story. This is The Story Project. Well, good morning.
I happen to know um, just from talking to people how much bravery it takes to go on and tell your story, to sit down and just open it up in front of hundreds, even thousands of strangers. And I also happen to know that uh, Amber's not able to be here this morning. She is, uh, but she is at home and she's watching online. So I would love for us to thank her for sharing her story. I confess, I have a bias in this series because I love good stories. I've always loved just a good story. In fact, I've probably always thought of my own life in terms of stories. I was born a daydreamer. I don't know if you're a daydreamer, but I was a daydreamer. And all of my life, I've sort of pictured myself in stories. I was thinking about it this week. Probably the, the, the earliest story I can remember in, I don't know, second grade or something like that was the, in my mind, I was going to be the president of the United States. Man, I'm glad that didn't happen. Wow. I think it was a year later I read a, a book that changed my life. It was called Nikki. The Wild Dog of the North. Man, I went through a phase where I wanted to be a dog musher. I just dreamed about it. In fact, my very first dog was named Nikki. She wasn't a husky, but she sort of looked like it, and that was the point. That's what I wanted to be. Middle school or just before fifth, sixth grade, whoo, I went through a phase. I wanted to be a veterinarian. I had a, I had a big heart for animals. I, wanted, I, even, I even volunteered in a vet hospital. Article in the newspaper. I was delivering puppies in the fifth grade. It was, man, my destiny was set. And then things changed. I don't know how I got it, but I got, a, I got the book Pumping Iron with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Man, that was a man right there. I went through a bodybuilding phase. Don't laugh. That was the exact opposite. Man, I, I, was, I was ready. It'd be a couple years later in high school youth group, I started to dream about being a preacher, about being a youth pastor. I was trying on different stories, figuring out what would fit. And I bet you've done the same all of your life. You see... We're made to be a part of a story. One of my favorite authors in my favorite book of his, Tim Keller, writing in Making Sense of God, says this. He says, we are future-oriented beings. We want to be part of a story, a good story. I think that's true. 
We look at our lives and the arc of it, and we want our life to be a story, a, a, and not just a story, a good story. And we, we're framing it and creating it and crafting it. And I think the reason we want that story is because God made us this way. He put it in our image, our DNA, our soul, our searching to be a part of a story that's going somewhere that's good. In fact, in one of Jesus' most famous sayings, it could almost be a thesis statement for the story. John 10.10, where he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came so that you could have life and life to the full. I came to give you a life, a full life. That's his plan. And it's inside of each of us. We want to be a part of that. Here's the problem, though. That story doesn't come with a table of contents, does it? Man. I mean, you can try and write a table of contents. We all do that, but God's not listening. Because if I were writing the table of contents, here's the truth. 54 years into it, there are a few chapters I would have left out. I'm not saying it would have made my story better. I am saying it would have made it easier. There have just been some chapters that I'm like, God, I don't understand the purpose of that. Why? Why? You see, we are constantly struggling with that question. Why is this chapter a part of the story? Why is suffering a part of the story of our lives? You see, we've been asking that time as long as we can remember. In fact, the very oldest, historically speaking, book in the Bible, the book of Job is an entire book about how we struggle with suffering. I mean, the whole thing is a narrative of life is great and then it's horrible and fighting with friends and family and trying to figure it out and how it all comes back together and what's happening in the middle and the cosmic battles at place. It's a story of trying to figure out suffering. And we've been trying to figure it out, well, for forever, <laughs> forever. Why is suffering a part of the story? To put it in plain terms, if, if God is good, why is there so much bad? Why is there evil? In fact, secularism, which is of course on the rise in our world, and its cousin atheism, always points the finger across and says to Christians, you don't have an adequate answer for this. You say God is good, but how come that chapter's in the book? 
The truth is, as, as hard as it is for us to wrestle through it, atheism is an even worse position because it has no answers either. In fact, it's forced into a corner of saying there's really no such thing as suffering because all there is is survival of the fittest. The highest law is survival. And when the lion kills the lamb, it's not evil. It's just, it's just survival. And how can you call something evil if there's, no, if there's no objective standard for what is good? Because God is the one who gives us something that is a moral standard of good. Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and others kind of wade into this space and they offer us, as an answer, karma. People love to joke about karma. Oh, there's karma. Karma, 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 karma. We roll it out on other people's, but rarely on ourselves. The fact of the matter is, karma is a brutal concept. It says that everything bad in your life is your fault. It may not have been you right now, but it was you in a previous life that you can't remember, and it's your fault. It's just being played out in karma. And not only that, you have to fix it, or you'll be reincarnated as a dog. So get to work. It's a brutally heavy burden to overcome. Christianity wades into this story with a, an understanding of free will and the choice to follow God or to reject Him, to choose His way or our way and the entrance of sin into the world. Perhaps no single passage lays it out better than this one in Romans chapter 5. It says in verse 12, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. So it gives us a narrative, a, a story, a description of where sin and its associated suffering came from. Adam's sin brought death. That word death is a, a stand-in for all of the suffering that we endure. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. It may not have started with you and me, but we're a part of it. For the sin of this one man, Adam caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18 kind of puts it together. It says, yes, Adam's one sin brought condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, one, many will be made Righteous. In other words, suffering is real, and you can't fix it. But Jesus? Jesus is. 
He is at work writing a story in this world to set everything that is wrong to right. But that's not it. It's not just wait and see. It's, it's more than wait and see. It's the story of what he's doing now. It's why I appreciate Amber's story so much. It doesn't, it doesn't finish with everything being good. It finishes in some of the same place of struggle and suffering. But here is the reality. At Jesus, part of the way he is solving suffering is he is giving us a way to live full lives right now in the midst of suffering. One way he does that is through these, these three promises. And this is where I want to sort of spend a few minutes this morning. They are the, the three promises, if you would, of, of suffering. They're, they're how he brings a full life in spite of what might be wrong in your life. And here's the very first one. If you're taking notes and writing things down, I'm going to read you one of the most famous verses about this. But it's the promise that bad things turn out for good. There's a famous verse about this. In fact, it's so famous, I think we, we, we sort of want to, we, we want to turn it into a cliche and pass over it like, like it doesn't really count. Romans 8.28 says, And we know, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And we know, he says, we know that God, that, that God is a divine author writing the story, has this way to cause everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. He has a way of taking that and causing it to work together for good. My, my favorite story, and, and, and the Bible is full of stories of how, of, of how God continues to do this, but maybe my favorite is the Old Testament story of a, of a young boy named you can call him Joe or Joey, but most people call him Joseph. Man, this kid had it all. He was, he was dad's favorite kid, the coolest clothes. He even dreamed about what his life would be like some days. And some days he made the bad choice of telling his brothers about those dreams. If you've read the story, then you know this didn't go very well for him. He, he tells his brother the story of how one day he's going to be great and grand and they're all going to be his servants. And you can imagine that didn't go over well. Baby brother that dad loves too much. They sell him into slavery. How's that for a story? That'll take a lot of counseling to overcome, folks. My brother sold me into slavery. Played me off as dead. He ends up living as a slave in Egypt. Finds himself in prison. Falsely accused. 
Man, God, what are you doing? What happened to the, what happened to the dream, the, 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 the good stuff that I thought was coming? You see, if you're familiar with the story, we always run to how he was elevated to the place of authority. Potiphar and then Pharaoh. I mean, it always seemed like he came out on top until he slid back down to the bottom. But what about those long periods in the pit? What about the notion in the back of a slave caravan that he had been sold into slavery by his brothers? And then, of course, there's this moment at the end of his story. And it's a great moment. He's risen to power. It's one of those winding stories that only God could orchestrate and He's now second in command of the kingdom and there's a famine in the land and here come his brothers marching down the aisle coming to beg for food. No idea that the brother they had sold into slavery years before is now the guy in charge of their destiny. Man, we love that part of the story. Prison part, leave that out. Pit slavery part? Let's not talk about that. We like this part right here and the part where he stands in front of his brothers and he looks at them and he says, because they don't know, they don't know. He looks at them and says, it's me, your brother, Joseph. You can't write better script than that. But it's the next words that are so unexpected. Verse 20 of Genesis chapter 50. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. You intended to harm me, but God meant it. God meant it for good. Listen, be careful with this because it's it's not a way of saying that everything bad in your life is good. That's, That's not the point of the verses or of the story. Evil is evil, bad is bad, but it's not, it's not to say that. It's to say that God is writing a story. There's a story arc in my life to those who love him and those who are living their lives, called according to his purposes, as it says in Romans 8. Listen, living my life for him. He is a supernatural author who is crafting that story in ways I could never have imagined to do something that is good. There's, a, there's another promise to, to this story, and, and, and again, it, I think it's good to be careful in how we understand it. But, and this is the one, if everybody loves to talk about how God brings good out of bad, nobody likes to talk about 
about this, but it's true and it might be just what we need to hear. And that is that it's the promise that there can be nobility in suffering. Nobody wants to Nobody wants to talk about the reality that it's not that, that suffering is noble. I, and this isn't, this isn't a call to go out and, and find suffering. It's, but it's the reality that, that, that in suffering, in suffering for a right and a good cause, there, there's nobility. There's something noble about it. Job shows what this looks like in Job 13, verse 15, where he, he says this. He says, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I think it's the King James that says it this way. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. He's my only hope. He's the only one I can turn to. No matter what happens, I'm not giving up on him. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 6 or 16. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. There's a, there's a certain nobility in, in suffering for a, for a good and a righteous cause. There's a, there's a certain nobility to, to suffering and, and reflecting the, the peace and the power of Jesus Christ in our lives in the middle of the very worst times. What I'm saying is you'll be able to look at your story and determine whether you're going to write the story of a helpless victim Or of one who is powerfully victorious because of what Christ has done in their lives. You see, it's not the kind of thing we love to talk about, the nobility of suffering. But sometimes in the middle of our deepest valleys, when nothing else makes sense, our faithfulness to Christ, our devotion to Him is all that we have left. And with Job, we find ourselves saying, even if He, even if he kills me, even if my life ends, I'm going to serve Him. I'm going to serve him. Do you, do you see that, that there, there's something about how we write that story in the midst of suffering? I was reading this past week the, the, the story of a, of a missionary named Alan Gardner from the early 1800s. He had spent the first portion of his life uh, as a, a naval officer, he had climbed the ranks, became a commander, seemed like everything was going right, and then the, the career path stopped. He never, he never got command of his own vessel, and 
Before he knew it, his career was over, but he got to do one thing he'd always dreamed of doing. He became a a missionary. He he wanted to give the latter part of his life to taking the gospel to people who'd never heard of it before, literally never heard the story of the gospel. He's on a, a, a ship that sets him on an island where they're literally, it's in the uh, the area of Patagonia, the, the southern tip of South America. They're there with enough, enough reserves for six months, but when they get on, they realize after the ship has left them, they realize that they, they, they didn't bring with them the necessary elements to hunt for food, and all they had was what they had. Six months later, no supplies have come, and they start running out of food, and One by one, they start to die of starvation. Until finally, Alan Gardner, the last of them, dies of starvation. We only know this because about 10 weeks later, a supply ship shows up and finds them in his journal where he had written this whole story down. The very last thing he wrote is why we remember Alan Gardner's life. The last thing he wrote in his journal, he said, I am overwhelmed by the sense of God's goodness in my life. I've had days where I didn't get what I wanted for supper and I wouldn't write that. I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God in my life. Nobility that can be found in the midst of suffering. The third promise is maybe the best of all. Because the third promise that God makes to us in the middle of suffering that enables us to live a full life, even when things don't feel all that full, is the promise that the best, the very best, is yet to come. That one day, he's going to set everything that is wrong to right. The very best, listen, the best is not here. Your best life is never now. You may have a good life now. You may have a great day now. But let me tell you, the best, the promise of God is that the best is yet to come. The past year or two, I've been just kind of ruminating on one passage of Scripture, and I, I wanted to read it to you. It's from Colossians chapter 3. I've, I've spoken on it a few times because it's been so close to my heart, but I just I wanted to read it to you again because it just reminds me of this. It says, since, starting in verse 1, it says, since you have been raised to new life, 
with Christ. Set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Then it finishes with this. And when Christ, who is your real life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. When Christ, who is your real life, is revealed, one day when he returns in his eternal kingdom that we generally call heaven is set up, you will share. You'll be a part of that story and the glory of that story and everything that is broken and every wrong and every suffering that is a part of it will be set to right and it will be worth it. You will share. Now, maybe you're like me and the whole wait and see thing is just hard to get excited about. Some of you are tracking with me right now. Like, like just wait and see. One day, heaven's going to be awesome. And I'm like, I'm just not there yet, God. I mean, wait and see is, I get it, it's good. And I'm glad that it's good. But I, I'm just trying to get through today. And wait and see is not doing it for me. Here's what I love about this passage. It's really not wait and see. Come and see. Did you see that? Those first three verses. Here's what they say. Since you have been raised to new life, since you, it's like Jesus is talking to you. Listen, listen, Ben, listen. Since you have been raised to new life in me, set your sights now. Set your sights on heaven. Let heaven fill your mind now. Don't think only about what's down here on earth. For you died when I died. You died with me in your real life. Your real life, Ben. It's, it's in me. And one day, when I return, everyone will see. But you don't have to wait for that day. You see, this isn't wait and see. It's come. It's come and see. In other words, he's inviting us to, to breathe deeply in the reality of another world. He's saying, listen, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of everything that is broken in your life, I want you to breathe deeply into another world. Because that's your real world. If you've been around here a while, you know I have a little bit of a phobia around water. I'm not a, I, I've, I had a cousin who drowned and I've always been a little bit hesitant. And because of it, I'm blaming this, I'm not a great swimmer. I'm an okay swimmer, but not a great swimmer. I'm, I'm good enough not to go under, but that's it. 
And years ago, I learned how to float. I am an expert floater, so I can bob in the waves forever. And the reason I'm not great is I've never mastered, like I watch people like swimming in the ocean. I'm like, how do they do that? They, they, you know, the hands and the legs going at the same time, that's also confused me. I'm just not coordinated enough, I guess. But the, the turn of the head and the breathe, I never figured that out. I'm just being confession. I can't, I just like, I try it and I take in salt water or chlorine. And so I just go like this, back down. It's really hard to swim very long if you can't breathe. That's why I love a, a, a good snorkel. Tammy and I have gone snorkeling a few times and and you, you put that thing in there and you got the goggles and you're able to you're able to kind of live in this world that you're not really made for because you're breathing deeply from the world you were made for are you with me that's what he's saying here he's saying listen you weren't made for this world And it'll drown you. It'll overwhelm you. But you've been given a new life, a new world. Just listen. Breathe deeply from that world. The reality of heaven, the goodness of God, the power of Christ to change a life, to write a story, to correct a wrong to do what we could never do, and if he never does what we want him to do, to trust that one day, one day, he'll set everything to right. That's what he's saying. Breathe deeply from that world. Would you bow with me? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And I just want to finish by... Let me finish by praying for those who just find so much in Amber's story that's their story, who just find themselves kind of in the middle of a, a messy journey. Chapters that they'd sooner get rid of. Suffering that doesn't feel like it's a good part of the story I just want to remind you God can use bad for good and he'll do it there is a nobility in the midst of suffering to reflect the goodness and life of Christ through your own life best the best is yet to come and that is not that is not wait and see it's come and see just drink breathe deeply from the reality of heaven his goodness father for every person who's struggling 
whose story has not been what they wanted it to be, who feels like they're in a chapter that won't end. I pray, Father, first and most of all, that you would enable them to catch a glimpse of your goodness, the promise of heaven, that we would together, Father, we would just drink deeply. We would breathe in your kingdom, the reality of your world, the reality of your work in our lives to see you and to know you and to breathe in for the world that we were made for. And that we would find in it the encouragement we need from you. Pray this together. In Jesus' name, amen.